Well, I want to encourage you to find uh, the New Testament letter, the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 4, as we continue to, to, to work our way through this uh, section of Paul's writing under this whole theme of living joyfully. How, how can I live a life filled, filled with joy? And as you're finding that, I'm going to invite you to think with me for just a moment, if you would. Where are the places where you tend to kind of find joy gets stolen from you? The joy kind of gets, gets kind of eaten away a little bit on you there. Where, where are those places for you? Maybe, maybe it's family. Maybe it's the job. Maybe for you it, it, it's your finances. Then it's just a joy killer. Maybe it's some other relationship in your life. You think, oh, when I think about that, it's just the joy gets sucked out. Maybe it's just some circumstances around you right now that are just beyond your control, but you're still having to deal with them, and the joy is just, feels like it's getting squeezed. Maybe it's just something on the inside. It's not so much what's going on out there. It's what's going on in here that tends to kind of rob you of the joy. Well, whatever it is for you, I, I want you to think, because this is kind of hopefully what you've been hearing as we've been walking through this letter and it's this truth the very places the very places where you experience your joy being stolen from you are the very places where God wants you to experience joy the very places the exact same places where you say this is where joy tends to get stolen is the same places, the same circumstances, the same relationships where God wants you to experience his joy. When we talk about living joyfully, joy is not about having perfect circumstances. It is about applying God's power and God's truth into the imperfect circumstances of my life. And we all have imperfect circumstances, right? Uh, I guess is that nobody is sitting here today saying every single area of my life is absolutely perfect. But God says in the midst of imperfection, in the midst of trial, in the midst of challenge, I want you to experience joy in the face of those things that suck the joy out of you. At that exact spot, I want to teach you how to experience joy. As Paul begins to, to wrap up his, his writing to what we now call chapter 4 as it's divided in, in most of our copies of God's Word, we find him giving to us six choices. Choices that you and I can make regardless of what is sucking the joy out of us today. Choices that we can make that help us to choose joy. And so I want us just to kind of walk through these, the first uh, few verses of this chapter and see what are choices that you and I can make that will help us to increasingly choose joy. And the first choice that he highlights from the very beginning of this chapter is, I choose joy when I choose to stand firm. When I choose to stand firm, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my 
beloved. Now, I want you to notice a couple things just in that, that first verse. First, I want you to notice this compassion, a compassion that he's expressed. Notice the terminology, brothers, which could be translated brothers and sisters, whom I love, I long for, my beloved he describes them as this joy, his, his crown, kind of this, this award of, of his ministry. These are people that he loves dearly. He has a great love for them. And because of his great love, he wants them to experience God's best. He wants them to experience joy in the imperfections of life. And one of the first things that he reminds them of, if you want to live in the center of God's joy, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. And so that's the charge. Out of his compassion, he issues them a charge. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm in the truth and the resources that God provides. Stand firm. Don't, don't be, be fooled. Don't be uh, compromising in an unhealthy way because here's what happened. I'll never experience God's joy if I engage in unhealthy compromise or conformity to the culture. And there's tremendous pressure to do that. And at times, maybe it seems like it relieves some stress. Or maybe it even delivers a short burst of happiness. But it never delivers sustained joy. Sustained joy comes when my life is, is standing firm in God and God's truth and, and the resources that he provides. And so one of the first choices I have to make is in a world that invites compromise in an unhealthy way, in a world that, as uh, Paul wrote to the Romans, seeks to squeeze you into its mold, stand firm, be distinct, be different, because when you stand firm in the Lord, then you are choosing to stand in the pathway of his joy. The first choice I can make to help choose joy is to choose to stand firm. But secondly, he builds on that and says, choose reconciliation over alienation. Choose reconciliation over alienation. I entreat, Eudodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow's workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, what's going on here? There, there are two women, leaders in the life of the church, influential people. They've been co-laborer with uh, Paul, co-laborer with uh, Clement and the rest of fellow workers, two influential women. And they are at odds. We're not sure what they're at odds over, but there is this relational rift. And it's not only affecting them, but it's affecting others. And that inevitably happens, right? Something's going on between us and somebody else. It's not just between the two of us. It always has a ripple effect. It affects our families. It affects co-workers. It affects other people along the way. And so there's always a ripple effect. And it is so important to Paul that he calls them out by name. And he doesn't just say, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche, but he says, I entreat Euodia, I entreat or urge Syntyche. He, he specifically urges or entreats both of them individually. Get this thing settled. Work this thing out. 
Paul wrote to the Ephesians, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as as God in Christ forgave you. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we think, well, I'm I'm not really alienated because I'm not like in open hostility. But if you allow bitterness to simmer, Bitterness kind of becomes this dry kindling, and it just sometimes just takes a spark to set it off. And God says, deal with that. Deal with that. So if you don't deal with that bitterness, if you don't deal with that wrath and anger, it eventually is going to flare up. But even if it doesn't flare up immediately, it's going to suck the joy right out of you, right? I mean, if you have bitterness in your heart, it's hard to experience God's joy, right? And so he says, seek, seek. Paul gave wise counsel in Romans, as far as it's possible with you, live at peace with all men. Realize that uh, total reconciliation always requires effort and work on both parts. But it requires something to begin to happen inside of us and to begin to act in ways. We need to make some choices to say, hey, how can I seek common ground and not the battleground, Right? And we live in a culture where it seems like, I mean, look at the politics, look at the the news, look at the Twitter feeds, right? It it seems like we immediately seek the battleground. We seek a fight. We we pick a fight. We we pick our differences. And it's like, can't we start? Yes, there's differences we'll talk about in a moment. But can't we start by saying, what is the common ground? What is the common ground? How can we find agreement? See, he urges them to agree in the Lord. Seek the common ground that you have beginning with your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Seek common ground before you seek out the battleground. And then learn how to disagree and differ without demonizing. And don't you, don't you wish our politicians in D.C. could just learn this one principle? I mean, I don't know when it exactly happened. I guess it's been a progression. But it's not only in politics, but it seems to be creeping into every fabric of our society. We can't differ with somebody without demonizing them. We have to kind of paint them as the bad guys and we're the good guys. And it's us totally right and they're totally wrong. And if you believe what they believe or practice there, you're almost demonic, right? I mean, how did we get here? Even at times within the body of Christ, how did we get here? When I choose reconciliation over alienation, I learn the art of disagreeing without demonizing. I can differ without demonizing. I seek common ground rather than immediately choosing up sides for the battleground along the way. I seek unity, not necessarily uniformity. It doesn't mean that we agree on everything. It doesn't mean that we all dress alike and talk alike and like the same foods. And all. It's not about uniformity. He is not saying, would you all be uniform in everything? But seek unity. Value that unity. And then he's, he's encouraging not only these two ladies, but also others. He's encouraging them to initiate and not hesitate. To initiate and not hesitate. Yeah, the, the scripture has this, this wonderful kind of sandwich, if you will. Whether you are the offender 
or the offendee, I think that's the right terminology, whichever end of the equation you're on, and most of us tend to think we're always the offendee more than the offender, but whichever side of the equation you're on, you know what the scriptural teaching is? Move toward the other. You know how biblically it ought to work out? Two people ought to run into each other running toward each other. Because both are initiating and not hesitating. But very often, we get into that trap. Well, what they said or what they did, and they ought to, you know, let them come to me, right? Let, Let them take the first step. I'm standing here. I hadn't changed, right? No, 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 no. Those who seek reconciliation over alienation initiate don't hesitate. In fact, is what Paul is calling for here. He's not only calling on these two ladies, but but he's asking the body of Christ to get involved. And so he says to this true companion, and some translators uh, feel like that's actually a, a, a proper name, Sazygos. Sazygos is a proper name, but whether it's a person or an unknown person, he's urging this person, get involved. You help initiate because it is so important that we seek reconciliation over alienation. You get involved. And so let's pause right here before we go further further. Let's try to begin to make this personal for you. Where, where in your life do you need to stand firm? Where is that for you? What does that look like in your life right now at this season, in this chapter of your life? Where is God saying, here's an area where there might be some compromise, stand firm? What relationship in your life might God be prompting you to initiate reconciliation over alienation? Is it always going to work out? Not in a world like ours. But am I to always make the effort? Yes. Yes, I am. And it may take more than once, right? But when I choose alienation, I'm choosing to not experience God's joy. When I choose unhealthy compromise, I'm choosing to miss God's joy. So out of love, he says, stand firm. Out of love for these two women in this church family, he says, seek reconciliation over alienation. But there's a third choice that he begins to outline here that helps us to deal with the joy killers because compromise will kill our joy. Alienation will kill our joy. But he says, choose my attitude. I choose joy when I choose my attitude. Look at verses 4 and 5, perhaps familiar verses to, to many of us in the room. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, there's a whole lot there just in those verses, right? And I want you to notice first, rejoice here is a command. It's a command. The the, the language there, the the Greek language, it's, it's, it's in the command voice. So he's not saying, this might be a good idea. It's a command. Rejoice. This is a command. This is something that God wants you to choose and continue to choose. Rejoice in the Lord. And it is in the Lord. We don't always rejoice about the circumstance we're in because it's hard. 
And please don't mishear what I'm saying here. I'm not saying don't acknowledge this is hard. This hurts. This is confusing. This is disorienting. Those things are absolutely true. I'm not necessarily choosing that I'm so delighted that this is in my life. But I'm choosing in the midst of that mess to say I'm going to choose to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to choose the attitude of joy because God has given me that capacity. He's given me the capacity to choose joy. Rejoice in the Lord. It is a command. You see, what happens is when you have a high view of God, it produces much joy. But a low view of God yields little joy. You want a barometer sometimes for your view of God? Check your joy level. Check your joy level, particularly in the midst of challenging times. When you have a high view of God, when you understand there is a God who is sovereign, when you understand that there's a God who is with you and a God who is for you, when you understand that there's a God that that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of that God, when you understand that God can cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, you can choose to rejoice because you have a high view of God, and a high view of God produces as much joy but if you have a puny god if you have a god that's just maybe a supersized you then you're not going to be able to experience much joy you're going to have a struggle to choose joy in the midst of the challenges of life our rejoicing is in the lord it's in the lord high view of god produces much joy but he talks about reasonableness Or gentleness, some of your translations will say. And you know, gentleness often shows itself up in our tone of voice, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you know in your relationships, you know in your family, you know in your work environments, you can say exactly the same words with two totally different tones of voice and it be received in two widely different ways, right? Right? And the words are the same. And you thought your words were innocent enough. How dare your spouse take offense? But they were hearing your tone. In fact, as some communication folks tell us, 90% of that communication is in our tone of voice. It's in our tone of voice. And gentleness shows up there. I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why the, the writer of Proverbs said, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, a harsh word gets you more retweets. I'll I'll give you that. It does. It does. But it's that gentle. It is that soft answer. And again, it is part of God's enabling grace. And the motivation to choose to rejoice, the motivation to choose uh, reasonableness or gentleness, is because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. 
He, he is near. And, and some folks read that and they say, well, maybe Paul was thinking the return of, of, of Christ was near. Perhaps. But I, I like to think of it more like this. He understood the Lord was near. Right here, right now. God is near. In this moment, in that situation, in that relationship, on the job site, God is there. And when you have that high view of God and you have that God who is with you right here, right now, you can choose gentleness. You're strong enough to choose reasonableness. You're strong enough to be able to say, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord, even if I don't particularly like all the circumstances that I find myself in. And so let's pause here. What attitude have you been choosing this week? Would the people who've been interacting with you this week say, he or she has been marked by joy? He, and she, he or she, they've conducted themselves with a gentleness or a reasonableness this week. What's the attitude you've been choosing? I choose joy when I choose my attitude. I choose joy when I choose worry over prayer. Prayer over worry, excuse me. When I choose prayer over worry. Verse 6. Right, end of verse 5, but in, he talks about be, do not be anxious about anything. Verse, uh, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I choose joy when I choose prayer over worry. The Greek word translated worry there has behind it the word picture of being torn apart. And isn't that what worry feels like sometimes to us? It feels like there's just kind of this, we're being ripped apart on the inside. It just feels like sometimes we describe it as because it's not or this, this thing in my gut. Or sometimes it feels like I'm being just pulled in all these directions and I, I kind of from forces on the outside and it's just ripping me apart on the inside. The old English word where we get our word worry from actually has as its roots to strangle. And that, isn't that what worry tends to do? It tends to strangle the life out of us. It certainly squeezes the joy out of our life. Paul admonishes us, don't allow worry to be the predominant thing in your life. But worry's a habit. Worry's a habit that we learn and practice, Right? And some of you are doggone good at it, aren't you? I mean, you've been practicing for a while now, right? I mean, we just, it's, it's a habit. We just, this is how I begin to habitually think, and this is how I begin to habitually respond to situations. And maybe some of you say, well, listen, it's a habit that my mama was good at it, right? I mean, I learned it from her, and I'm, I'm just kind of carrying on the family tradition there. Worry's a habit. Worry kind of sneaks in when I gaze at my problems in self-reliance or self-pity instead of looking to the Lord in trust and dependence. Worry is when I just evaluate this situation merely upon my resources and my thinking and my capacity. Or maybe I begin to slip into a self-pity. Why is this happening to me? Why is this taking place right here, right now? E. Stanley Jones famously said, to live by worry is to live against reality. To live by worry is to live against reality. 
Now, sometimes we think the opposite. We think, well, the people who are worrying, they're facing reality. No, 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 no. You're leaving God out of the equation. To worry is, to, is against reality, the reality of that God who is with you, the reality of the God who is for you and around you, the God that we just lifted up a moment ago. That's reality, the reality of a God who is here and active and involved and knows what he's doing, God who has got this. That's reality. When I choose worry, I choose worry in the face of the reality of God. But here's the thing. When God tells you to eliminate something, he always has something superior to replace it. Because just saying, don't worry, doesn't work, right? You know, what was the the little gimmicky song that was famous a couple decades ago? Don't worry, be happy, right? You know, some of you are going to have that in your head the rest of the day. Some of you don't know what they're talking about. Go Google it, right? But it's not enough just to say, don't worry, be happy. Because if we just say, don't do something, we, we rarely are able to do that. It's kind of like the old standby. If I'm to stand up here and tell you time and time again, don't think about pink elephants, don't think about pink elephants, don't you dare think about pink elephants, don't look at her hair and think about pink elephants for sure this morning, right? There's a story behind the hair. It's a good story. They won. But, uh, but if I tell you not to think about it like that, it, we're all going to think pink, right? God doesn't tell you just to stop doing something. He says, I've got something superior for you to replace it with. It's not don't just don't be anxious, but it is to pray. And notice the words he kind of piles up here, these phrases. To pray in everything, in everything. Here's the principle. If it's big enough for you to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. How about that? If it's big enough for you to worry about your finances, your health, your kids, your grandkids, your relationships, your job, your health, whatever. If it's big enough for you to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. In fact, is worry ought to be the trigger. If I find myself worrying about something, it's like, oh, replace it with prayer. It's big enough to worry about, big enough to pray about. Oh, stop. Replace it with prayer. Replace it with prayer. And he talks about he, these words he uses, prayer. It is seeing the greatness and the majesty of God. We could use the word adoration there. Prayer is not just me shoving a list before God and say, fix these things. But it is coming into the presence of God and just reminding myself and recognizing that he is worthy to be salt. And remember what we said earlier, high view of God produces joy. Low view of God produces very little joy. And so part of prayer that replaces worry is a prayer marked by adoration of just recognizing and and responding to the greatness of God. Supplication is certainly a part of prayer. Specific, detailed requests to God. Some things that I just want to pour out to him. But I do that with thanksgiving with an attitude of gratitude and appreciation. And just just to, to get into that habit of just, of just saying, God, thank you for these things. Thank you for these things. One, one of the practices, I learned it from somebody else, but it's, 
it, Susan and I have been been doing this at, at night together. It's just been it's just been just a pause and, and, and just say, okay, what, what what are three things that you're grateful for today? And we just spend just a couple minutes just here's some things we're grateful for today. Yeah. It just kind of helps reframe life a little bit. And maybe you've had one of those horrible, no good, very bad days, right? But even in the midst of those, there's something you can be grateful for. And you can give God thanks for it. And then you let your request be made known to him. Notice it's a request. It's not a demand. It's not even a suggestion, right? I've been known to offer God suggestions. Have you? Right? God, I'm not sure you're aware of this. Uh, maybe you haven't thought about it this way before, God. Uh, I'm not so sure you're running the universe really well in this little corner of my world, right? So I offer to God suggestions. <laughs> he doesn't need my suggestions. But you know what? My Abba Father says, bring me your request. Bring me what's on your heart. Bring me the stuff of your life so that I choose prayer over worry. R.A. Torrey said, prayer is the hand that takes to ourselves the blessings that God has already provided in his son. It's not that, 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 that prayer is, is like this thing that has power in it, but it's what God has done. Sometimes we talk about the instrumental calls and the, and the, the meritorious calls. The meritorious calls, the merit is the, the blessing of God comes through Jesus Christ. The only thing that merits of the blessing of God in my life is what Jesus Christ did. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That's where the merit comes from. But prayer is the instrument that God uses in my life to open me up. So it is in prayer, I open up my hands to receive that which God has already purchased, the merit that's already been purchased through the completed work of Jesus Christ. And when I choose worry instead of prayer, I'm closing my hands. I'm closing my hands to the provision of God and his son. And so again, let's think about it personally. Where do you need to choose prayer over worry? Where are the areas of your life where you are habitually finding yourself worrying? Can you begin to reframe that? And every time you begin to feel that pulling apart, every time you begin to feel the stranglehold of worry take that, that becomes the key that says, that becomes the trigger that says, now is the time to pray. Because if it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray over. Where do you need to choose prayer over worry? Two more. Choose my thoughts. I choose joy, Paul said, when I choose my thoughts. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
that our thoughts become that area where, where the battleground for joy often takes place, right? Because stress and worry and all those things are really an inside job. And you and I have been given the freedom by God to choose what we think about, to choose what we focus our thoughts on. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The opposite is what happens when I don't, right? Many of you perhaps memorized or heard quoted through the years uh, the King James Version of uh, Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We become what we habitually think about. We move in the direction of our predominant faults. And so we need to evaluate. And we, we've taught messages before about thinking about what I think about. And I need to intentionally say, God, by your enabling grace, I can choose. I can choose my thoughts. I can choose where I keep my mind stayed. I can choose what I think about. And then he just gives us a list. And and we can just run through that very quickly. He says, think about those things that are true, those things that conform to reality. And you want to know the first foundational part of that is God's Word. Just think about God's Word. Fill my mind with God's Word. It becomes that truth barometer which I can evaluate all the other thoughts of my life. Think about those things that are true. Think about those things that are noble or honorable. That, those things that lift up my eyes to God. Let my thoughts be fixated on those things. Those things that are right or just. The things that are done God's way. God says is right. God says is just. Let my thoughts dwell there, those things that are pure. One commentator described it this way, pure thoughts are those that are so clean they're ready to be brought into God's presence. Wow. What if I've evaluated my thoughts that way? Is, is this thought one I could bring into God's presence? Because I am lovely that which motivates love in our lives, a love for God and a love for other people. I want those things that are lovely, admirable or commendable, things that are spoken highly of, kindness, courtesy, respect for others, excellence. Think about those things that are the best in every area of life. Those things that are worthy of praise, that which deserves our praise, that which would call down the approval of God. Think about those things. And when I choose to let my mind stay there, when I choose to dwell there with my thoughts, then I am choosing the pathway of joy. But when I choose the opposite, then I'm choosing to allow the joy killers to step back in because a lot of our joy takes place on the inside it's not just about outside but it's what I'm thinking here on the inside and so again for personal evaluation what do you tend to think about what are you feeding your mind on a habitual basis and what is it producing in your life when I choose my thoughts I can choose joy 
One more that he has for us here, kind of six choices that I can make to choose joy. Choose my actions. I can choose my actions. So building on that, the life of prayer, building on on my thought life, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Put these things into practice. Actually, do these things. It echoes the words of James, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Listen, if I just hear truths, even if I can tell those truths to other people, whether it's in a personal conversation or a small group or from a platform like this, but I'm not doing them, I am deceiving myself. I I am deceiving myself to think I'm better off than I am, that I'm better than I am, that I am going to experience more joy than I will. I'm deceiving myself. My actions have to align with God's truth. Beliefs in our head are never, ever, ever enough. Truth must always, always, always be lived out. That's when I begin to choose joy. When I begin to more and more align my life with God's design, I align my life in a way that it allows God's joy to flow in me and through me. I choose my actions. So again, this past week, what have your actions been like? Has it been in conformity with the things that you would see in Scripture You'd see in the life of Paul, you would see in the life of men and women that you know who are walking with God. What do my actions say about how I'm aligning myself with God's truth and standing in the pathway of his joy? Six choices that we can make. And in those, we choose joy. But I want you to see the result. What is the result of kind of piling these choices, the result to, to stand firm, the, 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 the choice of, of choosing prayer over worry, the cho- choice of, of seeking a reconciliation instead of alienation, choosing my thoughts and choosing my actions. What is the result of that? One word, peace. Peace. Did you notice he highlighted that a couple times in these verses, verse 7? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. What is this peace? It's a quiet confidence. A quiet confidence within, regardless of the circumstances, people, or things that surround us. I have this quiet confidence, this peace that really can't be explained to the world. It is a peace that surpasses all understanding. And he uses the word guard. The military term, meaning to keep watch over. And there's almost a, a little humor in this. Remember where Paul's writing from, right? Prison. He's writing in prison where he is being guarded, where he has people watching over him, and some have even suggested probably even chained to him at times. And here he is being diligently watched over by these uh, these guards, and he says, that's what will happen in your life. When you make these choices, God's peace, God's peace will stand watch over you. And that's what Jesus promised to us, didn't he? Right before his crucifixion, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
and let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's not a peace that's dependent on the circumstances. It's not a joy that's dependent upon having a good day. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. But before I kind of wrap this up, I want to make sure the foundation is crystal clear. And that is the relationship between peace with God and the peace of God. See, peace with God always precedes the peace of God. I'm not going to experience God's joy if I'm alienated from God. I'm not going to experience God's peace if I'm not in a right relationship with God. Last Sunday morning, I kind of concluded with an old school questions. And one of those questions was, if you didn't wake up tomorrow morning, do you know that you know that you would be with God forever in eternity? What I didn't know last Sunday morning when I asked that question was what I would find out when I woke up Monday morning. And that's that 58 people went to a concert in Las Vegas. Assuming they were going to have a good time, they were going to get up the next morning. But they didn't have that chance. Hundreds of lives impacted. Ripple effect of that continue on. And as I kind of woke up and like many of you were hearing bits and pieces of that news throughout the busy day just reminded me you don't know that today is the day of salvation today is the day to make sure that I have a peace with God and that only comes through Jesus Christ it only comes when I recognize the reality of my sin and rebellion against a holy God. And I choose. I choose by his enabling grace to turn from sin and self and turn and place my faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And to allow him to be the forgiver of my sin, but the rightful leader and Lord of my life from this point forward. And so I'm going to urge you again this day. If you're not sure where you stand in a relationship with God, all of these things I've been talking about are so important, but they all presuppose a foundation, a foundational relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Peace with God always, always, always precedes the peace of God. We want you to know that peace. Before you leave this room today, I'm going to urge you, if you just need to talk more about that, or today you know, you know God's gripping your heart about this, you make your way to the connect room. It's right in the back, right down this aisle. It's a connect banner there. We've got a team of folks that would be honored, delighted to share with you how you can know the peace of God by having peace with God. Let's bow our heads together as we pray again, please. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the peace that you offer to us. 
Thank you that you have given us the capacity to choose joy in a world that so often seems bent on, on stealing it or killing it or destroying it in our lives. And so, Father, I just, I'm just going to ask right now, Lord, that you would just speak to every individual here in that incredible way that you do, Father, that you speak individually and personally to each and every one of us. And Father, I pray, first of all, for some folks that right here, right now, today is the appointed day. Today is a divine appointment. Today is the day for them to get right with you through Jesus Christ. Lord, let today be the day that they take that step to a connect room, that they sit down with someone and and clearly understand what it means to receive Jesus Christ as forgiver and friend, as their rightful leader and Lord. Lord, let today be that day. Father, I pray for your children across this room. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand who we are and what we have in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would remind us that we can choose to live distinctly and differently. We can make choices that open us up to the floodgates of your joy, regardless of what's happening around us, regardless of what others may say or do. Father, that we can experience your joy, a joy that can't be stolen, a joy that can't be killed. Father, let today be the day that you just reorient us back to those choices. With these last few moments that we have remaining in this room, I'm just going to ask you just to keep in that attitude of prayer, if you would. And As you just sit before the Lord, we invite you to make this very, very personal today. There's some questions at the end that may serve you in doing that.